going mixed tech today, just so you know. We're going to do some low tech, high tech. Can everybody see this with these here? Before I start the message today, just it's interesting that as I put together messages these days, that God every time shows me, God shows me how far my life has changed since I've started pursuing an understanding of grace. And some of that's going to come out today. And Greg is gone. We call Greg, for those of you who are visitors, we call him the Bishop of Grace. And the joke, is, you know, years ago when Greg would teach, he'd never have any notes. Suddenly Greg's now coming with eight pages of notes. And I used to have 30 pages of notes, and then I start coming with almost no notes. So God is just funny to begin with. He's got a great sense of humor. And in the process of all of where we have come from, God has been defining things. And I've come to the conclusion that Living Grace Ministries' true calling is to create disciples, not converts. We are here to equip you to share God's love and grace and mercy with others. That's an exciting responsibility and role. And we get to cover lots of different topics. And today we're going to cover the paradox of sin. How many of you know what a paradox is? Two doctors in a room. <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's pretty good, John. Can you write some material for me? <laughs> a couple of docs on a lake? Okay. Well, you know, the paradox is, is something that we live with in our life. And a paradox is defined as a statement or proposition which, despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems logically unacceptable or self-contradictory. A person or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities, like cathedrals face the paradox of having enormous wealth and treasures but huge annual expenses. That's an example. And paradoxes are something that seem right but seem contradictory at the same time. And sin is one of those paradoxes in a sense that there are scores of views about sin. And God has a view and man has a view. Whose view do you want to adopt? God's. What we think about sin, what we think about God, it creates a tension because there's a side of us that accepts the objective reality that God is who He is and that in that objective reality, He's good. He's loving. He's kind. And in that objective reality, that's always true. But then there's a part of us that lives in subjective reality that says God is good except towards me. And we are beaten from childhood. and It's beaten into us that do good, get good, do bad, get bad. So I never quite know if I'm good enough because there's no objective standard here. It could be the standard of my mom. I'll tell you, the standard of my mom was different than the standard of my dad. Or the standards of my parents were different than the standards of my teachers. So depending on which environment I was in, the standard was always shifting. So that feels like uncertainty, right? He's loving sometimes. When I don't feel lovable, God's not lovable. He's not loving me if I don't feel lovable under this subjective. Over here, He's always loving. Whether I know it or not, whether I feel it or not, objective reality is always true. Subjective reality is always shifting, depending on what's going on. It's controlled by teaching. It's controlled by emotions. 
And so, even in the context of a paradox, God is always good. But He's not always good to me. Sometimes God's loving towards me. All the time He's loving towards me. And I go back and forth. Now, before I began to study grace, I lived here in subjective reality. Because if you were raised in an Arminian tradition, you could lose your salvation. Do bad, get zapped. No recovery. Unless you went to the altar all the time. The problem is, what if you missed one? What if you missed a sin? Doggone it! I came that close. (sighs) And so there was always fear. Subjective reality breeds fear. There's no peace. There's no rest. Only trouble comes. Isn't that what Job said? That's a tough place to live. And almost every one of us in this room has lived there at least part of our life. Talk about fear, you know. (laughs) When my mother would say, wait till your dad gets home, there was a subjective reality that oftentimes had a physical manifestation. (laughs) Not fun. And so this dilemma of the paradox of God and the paradox of love and the paradox of sin is we want to believe in objective reality, but then we look around our world and we look at all the things that are not so pleasant. And that causes us to doubt objective reality and objective truth. But God is not one who doubts himself. And he's telling us that we shouldn't doubt ourselves. And so there's this tension, this struggle between do good, get good, and he's always good and always blessing me. And is always kind to me. And that's kind of where I wanted to set some things up today with the concept of discussing sin because depending on which reality you're anchored in, you will have a different perception of sin and what God did with sin. If I am, let me, let me give you an example of living out of a subjective reality. 25 years ago, Carol and I got married. You know how it is when you get married, you're excited and things are going well. And then within a few months, they start going, God, this woman you gave me, (laughs) she's not getting with the program. You need to change her. And I would go for these long walks, God, you really need to change her. I can't deal with this. And I'd go, God, if she keeps up like this, I'm going to go to the broom closet, I'm going to hand her the broom and tell her to fly away. And then you go to church and you act like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's great. How are you today, pastor? Yeah, this, this is, life is really good. And the pastor starts out, a com- he starts out with a sermon and he goes, you know, today I was in the broom closet and God gave me something that I, want, that I should just preach on. And I'm going, you know, you sit there and you go, God, what are you doing? <laughs> are you talking to me? God, you know better than to talk to me like that. And then you start this whole dilemma, this whole debate. God, I'm not going to go to the altar. I'm not going to go to the altar. I was raised in a church where you had to go to the altar and you had to repent. And you had to gnash and wail and cry. and blah. That's the subjective reality. And I never felt like I arrived. And then grace comes around. And in the last five years, my perception of my wife has changed dramatically. It started changing 25 years ago. It got to a point where, okay, she's not my enemy, but now I see her as a child of God. And I see her as the wonderful, created child that he adores. So I need to get with the program, not her. Changes things. You know, those thoughts about get the broom out, let her fly away. We would call that sin under subjective reality, right? And then it was like, oh, God, the prophet's coming to town. I hope he doesn't expose me. (laughs) Versus, she's an awesome person that God created. And what I thought back then is lost and gone. Why? Why? 
because he doesn't remember it anymore. Even if it's sin, he doesn't remember it anymore. And so there's that tension and that paradox. Am I loved? Am I not loved? Is it always true? Well, maybe it's true. He's always good and kind to me. He's always casting out darkness away from me. Well, but if I'm good enough on this side. And so that's the struggle of evangelical theology versus Trinitarian theology, where the Trinitarian theology anchors in His goodness. Always true. Anchors in everyone is created in His image and likeness, if, even if they're not acting like it. It's just a matter of it being unfolded for them. But over here, wow. Do you see what Terry was doing today? I mean, look at him in worship. He was just being hog wild in worship today. Someone ought to rein him in. And that's where we come to this. Linda sent me a, a link on a Facebook situation back on July 3rd. And this is what a comment was made. Jesus instructs us to speak to a sinning brother and sister and encourage them to repent. It is not judgment when a person sees and warns their brother or sister that their actions are not holy unto God. As Christians, we must understand that making someone aware of their sin is important not for our own reputation, but for the salvation of their souls. I can love the sinner as much as I want, but will never accept the sin and I will not support this march. Reactions to that. Which reality does that stem from? Subjective reality. How do you know? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for feedback. Okay. What else? It's pretty strong to say that I am supposed to encourage you to repent. That means I'm making a value judgment about you. Right? And I'm making a value judgment based upon what? Your behavior. Your expressions. I've set a standard and I'm making a value judgment based upon my standard. In an objective reality, I'm making a value judgment based upon what God says and His standard. But in a subjective reality, I'm saying God's standard isn't the right standard. I'm going to impose my own. And I get, you get comments like this. And when I looked at that, there seems to be some paradoxes in the statement. Can you name any? Let me go take you back there. Can you see any paradoxes in there? Judgment. Yes. I love you, but I'm judging you. That's a paradox. Any others? Let's go here. There's the post again. I call you to repent, but I'm not judging you. Mr. Curlis, I better see you on your face in about five minutes, bud. Repenting. But I'm not judging you. No, man. I can love the sinner, but I tell you, I, but I tell you your actions are an affront to a holy God. And to me. That's the implication. Your actions are really an affront to me. But I love you. I can love the sinner, but I reject where your heart is centered. Over here, is it about where your heart is centered or where God's heart is centered? And over here, is it about where your heart is centered or where God's heart is centered? Yours. And what happens if everybody's living out of where their heart is centered? Chaos. War. Destruction. Judgment. Condemnation. Shame. Guilt. When Adam and Eve felt shame and guilt and condemnation, where was their heart centered? On God's reality or their reality? Their reality. And would it change your thoughts about the quote if I told you the background is that the quote was made in response to a group of Christians 
who attended an LGBTQ rally and apologized for the way Christians have judged and condemned individuals in the lifestyle. And that they were attempting to share the love of God by removing condemnation and judgment. Would that change your perception? The the persons that were trying to do it were being criticized by the person who made the quote. What leads to repentance? The goodness and kindness of God leads to repentance. Paul never says, you little rascal, you, you better change your behaviors. He doesn't wag a finger in a person's face. But he says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Who's supposed to show the kindness of God? We are. He shows it to us so we can show it to others. And if we truly want to address the sin issue, is we have to decide if we're going subjective reality in judgment or objective reality in loving kindness. You can't do both. You can talk to a person who's in the LGBTQ lifestyle and go, God still loves you because he, he created you. He looks at you and he says, you are awesome. But I know the world has judged you. I know family members have judged you. But I just want you to know God loves you. Back up and let the love of God work. Because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what frequency they're on. When you share the love, he knows how to amplify it. But when you share, share guilt and shame and condemnation, what's going to happen? What happened to Adam and Eve when they sensed guilt and shame and condemnation? What did they do? They hid. And so when you start condemning people, what are they going to do? They're going to want to hide from you. And because you claim to be a representative of God in that moment, they're going to want to hide from God. Because if that's what God's like, I don't want anything to do with it. I have heard that people say that. And it's like, oh, oh. And when I read that quote, a bunch of thoughts started popping to my head. What is sin? Does Jesus really instruct us to speak to another person to encourage them to repent? What is repentance in this context? Does a person's actions or behavior define their relationship with God, or does God define our relationship with Him? Am I a sinner or am I a saint? What am I if I'm in objective reality? I'm a saint. But if I'm living out of a subjective reality, constantly judging my behaviors, I'm going to call myself a sinner. And what I think about me in my heart becomes what? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if I look at myself as a sinner, saved by grace but always a sinner then I'm waiting for the axe to fall. And I lived that for... I came back to the Lord at 36. I grew up, as most of you know, in an extremely legalistic church. Walked away at 20 and said, if that's who God is, I can't deal with that. At 36, I had an awakening to the love of God. Came back, but I still, for the next 15 plus years, thought, I'm just waiting for the axe to fall. Because I was programmed as a child that it was the God of the lightning bolt. And so as I thought in my heart, that's where I was. And then I started getting introduced to grace. And I realized that he loved me. The first time I had a sensation of the Father loving me, I wept. My dad was not the most affectionate person in the world when I was young. He was not the most soft-spoken person in the world when I was young. He had an almost Paul-like conversion later in life, but by then my childhood had already been fixed. My early transformative years had been fixed and solidified. And how many of you know, when you carry that into adulthood, there's a point in time and it usually comes, and we call it a midlife crisis, where those coping mechanisms don't work anymore. And at 36, I started having a breakdown of those coping mechanisms. And then what are you left with? You're either left with you're a total failure, you're a total freak, God made a mistake when he created you, and you should check out, which that's the thoughts I had at 36, 
or a few days later after that, God beginning to show his love to me and going, I don't want to check out anymore. There's something greater than me defining who I am. And we live in a culture where people are starving to know that. There is something greater than who they are that defines them as who they are. They are not who they think they are. They are not good sometimes and bad sometimes. God is not good when they're good and bad when they're bad. He's not trying to take them out. He's not trying to punish them. He's trying to say, come into my heart of love. Let me show you who you are. Let me show you my kindness. Let me plant you in the direction that I prepared for you. And then let me walk with you in that direction. There's a wooing of the Spirit that comes to that. And then I had a few other questions. Am I responsible for the status of another person's soul? Because over here, if you don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and they go to hell, whose fault is that? It's yours. And if so, if I'm supposed to, what happens if I don't make someone aware of their sin? I get penalized. Because it's on me at that point. I'm, I wasn't created to be God. <laughs> and you're all are going, Amen! <laughs> so how do I reconcile all of that with grace? That was a question. Am I without sin? What does John say? <laughs> Let me qualify that. Apostle John, what did he say? <laughs> what did the apostles say about sin? Am I without sin? He says, no, if I, if I say I'm without sin, then I'm a liar. Right? And now he's talking to the transitional generation that lived on both sides of the cross at that point. But it's a recognition in one sense. Who am I to judge? Right? If I got my own issues, who am I to judge you based upon my standard that flows out of my issues? Doesn't Paul say grace abounds more than sin? Doesn't God say he's forgotten our sin? Hasn't God canceled the written code? I mean, as soon as I read that, these are the questions that started popping. Boom, 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 boom. And they should pop because it creates that tension that I need to resolve. Do I truly believe God is good out of objective reality or do I believe everything is conditional with God out of subjective reality? And that's what's going on when we start talking about sin. You know, I can pull every single person here and get a different definition of sin. See, objective reality looks at God's relationship from a perspective of union. Subjective reality focuses on man's perspective and often falls back to moralism. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Deuteronomy 28. Old covenant repealed by Jesus or fulfilled by Jesus, if you prefer, but no longer subjectively applied to us today. Does that mean I should go commit bad things? No. But where's, where's the law of God now? Written in our hearts. Where man once had a heart of stone, he says we now have a heart of flesh. And where the Spirit of the living God used to operate under the old covenant from out here, he now operates from in here going, Terry, your wife's not your enemy. She's my daughter. Treat her as such. Okay, Lord, I can do that if you are with me while I'm doing it. Because if left to my own devices, I may not always do it that way, Lord. But I know you are in union with me and I can do that now. So that's part of the difference between objective and subjective. Athanasius talked about, in about 350 A.D., it was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil, and it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. That paragraph, what he's, what he's essentially saying is it would be unjust and unfair of God to allow man to die out because of a flaw that arose because of a lie spoken by the deceiver 
when God intended man to be very good. That sort of creates a dilemma for God then, doesn't it? It's that, what do I do then? As then the creatures whom he had created reasonable like the word were in fact perishing and such noble works were on the road to ruin. What then was God being God to do? What's God to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? If God knew from the beginning before the foundation of the universe what choice Adam was going to make, why would he create man? Why would he set him up for failure? That's a question. It's a fair question. Surely it would have been better never to have created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. And that far more than if he had never created men at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. And now you start moving into the direction of is man inherently depraved or is man inherently good? Because if man is inherently good, why wouldn't God put a plan in place? But if man is inherently evil, if man is inherently bad, why would God want to? So now you're looking at motivation. And the Trinitarian objective reality is God created man and declared him very good, and that declaration has never been revoked, even after Adam's choice. And if that declaration has never been revoked, why wouldn't he want to come with a gusto to show himself and restore? But over here, many theologians say, in the subjective reality of God, in the subjective reality of man, man is inherently evil, and but for God, the majority of humanity is going to perish. Those are huge paradoxes. Is man inherently good? Is man inherently evil? Where's God in the mix of all that? And that's been the struggle for thousands of years with church and religion. Jonathan Edwards, here's the, here's the subjective version. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Jonathan Edwards the man who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, says God is waiting with the bow, and it's a whim whether he releases it or not. Ah, wow. How many of you want to cozy up to this God? It's a tough one. Calvinist. Christ died for the unbelief of the elect so that God's punitive wrath is appeased towards them. This God is a God of punitive justice, a God of punitive wrath, and you better mind your P's and Q's. This God is a God of love who is going to move heaven and earth and die voluntarily of his own choosing based upon the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and a decision based in eternity past to come and save mankind. How many want to cozy up to that God? Talk about paradox. God of wrath versus God of unconditional love. This God, you better make some sacrifices for. You better say your confession every day. You better keep a short account with God. Doggone it, I just... I just reconciled my accountant and five minutes later there's something else in there. It's always an ongoing battle of reconciling the account. That's exhausting. Because who's the burden on to reconcile the account? It's on me. 
And the problem is, I don't know, I don't know all the standards. Because on one hand, we're told he's unknowable. On the other hand, we better know what he wants. And it just creates confusion. And it creates anger. And it creates judgment. And it creates that message that we, we looked at from Facebook. This is how I interpret God, so you better interpret God the same way. And when you don't, then I pass judgment. Or when you don't, you get kicked out of church. What we're talking about is back to this. Perspective, perception, belief, experience becomes our reality. If my perception is this subjective reality and that sin has to be appeased, sin has to be confessed, sin has to have a short account in my life, but and that I'm just morally defective and on any given moment I can jump off the cliff because of I don't even know what I'm doing, that becomes my reality. On the other hand, if I come over here and God says that you are very good, you are inherently very good, yeah, you make some choices some kind, sometimes that are not the best, but I love you and I will come to you in the midst of your choices and I will come to you in the midst of, of the, the issues of your life that are, that are going on. I will show you a better way because I love you and I will walk with you in the midst of that love. That's a different reality. Which reality do we want to live in? See Baxter Kruger, one of the, my instructors in my theology program that I just finished. Christ did not go to the cross to change God. He went to the cross to change us. He did not die to appease the Father's anger or to heal the Father's divided heart. Jesus Christ went to the cross to call a halt to the fall and undo it to convert fallen Adamic existence to His Father to systematically eliminate our estrangement so that he could accomplish his father's dreams for our adoption in his ascension. You see, over here, the goal of dad is to pull us into the circle of love and adopt us. Over here, a few of us will be adopted. And because of this, you get kind of you get the philosophy like of the Jehovah Witnesses, where there's 144,000 elect. It's a spinoff out of not knowing where the lines are. I hope I hope you're understanding what I'm saying today is that we live in realities that are formed sometimes on influences that we don't stop and think about. But when God in His love breaks out on the scene like He did in worship today, I don't know how many of you enjoyed worship, but I did. I felt love today. And when He breaks out in that love, He begins to go, you know that perception you had about such and such? That's really not who I am. That's not what I am about. This is who I am. I'm good. I'm good in all my ways. And He goes, in my goodness... Give me the opportunity to show you. Don't hold up over here and put a hand up and going, because I've done this too. God, I can't deal with that right now. I remember the first time I started reading a book of John G. Lakes, a collection of his sermons. It's about that thick, maybe five, 600 pages. And I read the first 72 pages in, 19, in 19, 2001. I read the first 72 pages and I went, this God is way beyond me. <laughs> and I put the book down for five years and never picked it up again for five years because I felt so inadequate compared to John G. Lake. I felt I, I'll never be there. And yet over here, God says I'm already there. <laughs> it's just a perception issue. Let me tweak your perception. So what is sin? Let's say all that to get to this question. What is sin? You're still with me? You're still awake? The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines sin. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It is defined by St. Augustine as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. 
And sin is an offense against God. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our heart away from it. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God's, knowing and determining good and evil. Sin is thus love of oneself, even to the contempt of God. This statement says, living over here is going to be living out of the tree of the, good, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Because I'm going to evaluate God based upon my perception and my expectations and my determination of God as to whether He's good or not and whether you're good or whether you're evil. That's eating out of the wrong tree. I'm supposed to eat out of this tree, which is the tree of life, which is God defines who He is. I don't. And God says He's good. And God says He's dealt with my sin issue. Remember, for those of you who went through the the last Thursday night teaching when we did the Rick Miller series, Rick Miller talks about their sin. Excuse me, Mike Miller. Thank you, Carol. Mike Miller says there is the, the, the condition called sin, but then there's behaviors called sins which arise from the condition of sin. Okay? And so we're talking about the condition of sin. What does God say about the condition of sin? That's where, our, where I'm working on right now. Because once you figure out the condition of sin and you live in objective reality, the behaviors, take a, the, the behaviors resolve. The Reformed Church says sin is anything that is contrary to the will of God. It can be stubbornness, rebellion, or outright disobedience. Sins is the cause of all pain, hurt, confusion, and doubt in the world, and it is not part of what God intended. So the behaviors cause the pain, but sin is the condition behind it. Easton's Bible Dictionary, any want of conformity unto or the transgression of the law of God. And it cites John, 1 John 3, 4 and Romans 4, 15. In the inward state and the habit of the soul, as well as the outward conduct of the life, whether by omission or commission. You know, you've got to be a theologian to figure that one out. And it is not a mere violation of the law of our, or, uh, of our constitution nor the, of the system of things, but an offense against a personal lawgiver and moral governor who vindicates his law with penalties. Where does that camp put you? Put you over here. Because he's waiting with the lightning bolt. I pulled 1 John 3, 4 out because it's talked, it talks about it here. And I pulled it out of the Mirror Bible. And I want you to see from a grace perspective the difference. Sin is distorted behavior or distorted behavior is the result of a warped self-image. A lost sense of identity is the basis of all sin. You're very good, but you've forgotten you're very good. Versus, you are depraved, there's nothing good about you, you're just lucky God is smiling today. The, the word for behavior, or the word for sin, excuse me, is harmatia from the word ha, meaning negative or without, in meros, portion or form. Thus to be without your allotted portion or without form. Pointing to a disoriented, distorted, bankrupt identity. Garbage in, garbage out, right? Wrong identity, you're going to get wrong behavior. Good identity, which is that condition. Wrong, wrong identity is the condition of sin triggered by Adam versus the good identity by God's declaration that you're very good. And he quotes from 2 Corinthians, or he refers to the words meros um, or morphe in 2 Corinthians 18, where, but I bl- highlighted sin is to live, out of the context with the, to live out of the context of the blueprint of one's design, to behave out of tune with God's original harmony. That's a completely different chord. And I picked that word intentionally. Harmony. When two instruments play the same note, the same chord, there's a resonance. When we're out of tune with the author who says we're very good, the creator who says we're very good, we're going to get a sour note. But when we shift our identity, our focus to I am truly very good in my core, 
then if I truly believe that, then what comes out of my core? Goodness and loving kindness. So that when I share God with someone, they're going to sense, they're going to feel, they're going to know the goodness and loving kindness that's in me. See, Deuteronomy 32.18, he refers back, you have forgotten the rock that begot you and have gotten out of step with God who danced with you. And the word, word cool or keel to dance is the root of sin is to believe a lie about yourself. Isn't that what Adam did? Is he believed a lie about himself? Didn't he believe he was inadequate before God? That he didn't have everything that he should have? That's really what the, the deception was about. So you see, from a grace perspective, it's about perception. It's not about behavior. From a law perspective, it's about behavior and not about perspective. I can't live a, a life under the law anymore. Why? Because it doesn't apply to me anymore. And if I try to live under the law, then I'm saying objective reality doesn't apply anymore. I'm going to choose subjective reality. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be angry. I'm, going to f- I'm just going to have one of those days when I'm going to explode beyond being very good to what very good looks like. Or I'm going to t- tell my wife to go find the broom. So, objective reality of God is about union. It's about Jesus and His grace. Now, you, all of you know, when Jesus taught Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's, t- he's teaching to the Jewish generation under the law. And He's a prophet. On top of being a teacher, on top of being the Son of God, He's a prophet. And He makes some very interesting prophetic declarations. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Objective, subjective. It's objective. Does it depend on man doing anything? No. It's a declaration. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven objectively. Now, whether I appropriate it in a subjective reality is up to me. I can agree with it or I can disagree with it. But objective truth is still truth. What I choose to do with it is not on him, it's on me. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now you have to understand, this is in the context that he's casting out demons, and what do they say to him when he's casting out demons? You're doing it by the power of the devil. They're accusing the Son of Man of being the devil. And he's going, that's a tough one for God to swallow because God is not the devil. So if you're going to equate me with the devil, then there will be consequences in a sense that you cannot step into objective reality. You can't. Because you see me as the devil, you won't accept me as objective reality. So I will always be over here in subjective reality, if I cannot see him objectively as God, then I am never going to see the true picture. And there's a consequence to that. In the natural, for sure, because I'm going to make really stupid choices. John 14, 16 and through 20 in the New King James Version. And I will pray that the Father, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, this is again a prophetic word before the cross. Is the Holy Spirit in them yet? Before the cross? No, he doesn't show up till Pentecost. So he's saying, but you're going to know him because he's going to dwell in you. And he just didn't say to the 12, he's just going to dwell in you 12. Aren't you the lucky ones? He's making a declaration to humanity. He will dwell with you and will, and will be in you. And I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day 
At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is not a declaration of the second coming. This is a declaration of what's going to happen after the cross. And it's not limited to some. He declares it for all. That's the objective reality. But again, some may choose to ignore that reality. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. This is after the cross. And he's saying, Adam, you messed it up, but Jesus fixed it. Objective. Again. Here's the, the second half of that, those, that verses. And the gift is not that, like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Can you say no condemnation? For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. It came to all men as a free gift, justifying life. So going back to that quote and to the people who were marching, did that gift apply to them? Objectively, yes. They just haven't had a subjective realization yet. Think back to your own lives. Was there a point in time when you had an aha moment when God became very real? How many have had more than one of those? How many of you have had more than 20 of those? <laughs> it's an ongoing revelation. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Objectively, sin is subverted and destroyed to the condition of sin by Jesus appearing on the scene as a man in the incarnation, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. Objectively, destroyed sin. Subjectively, I may not understand that. And for the longest time, I didn't. How do I know that? Carol, would you go get the broom? Okay. <laughs> See, objectively, I didn't grasp that. And I'm making judgment calls. Right? And I'm posturing myself based upon the judgment calls, based upon my limited understanding. My limited understanding does not negate the objective reality of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. My limited understanding does not negate the objective reality of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at those same verses from the mirror, from the grace perspective. One person opened the door to sin. Who is that? Adam. Sin introduced spiritual death. Because we know Adam didn't die physically, so it had to be a spiritual death at that moment. Doesn't mean there wasn't a complication in the natural that led to death, but at that moment it introduced spiritual death. Both sin and spiritual death had a global impact. Duh! No one escaped its tyranny. The law did not introduce sin. Sin was just not pointed out yet. 
In the meantime, spiritual death dominated from Adam to Moses, 2,500 years before the law was given. No one was excluded, even those whose transgression was different from Adam's. The fact is that Adam's offense set sin into motion and its mark was globally transmitted and stained the entire human race. The only similarity in the comparison between the offense and the gift is that both Adam and Christ represent the masses. Their single action, therefore, bears global consequence. The idea of death and separation that was introduced by one man's by one person's transgression is by far superseded by the grace gift. Amen, right? Lavished upon mankind in the one man, Jesus Christ. Lavished upon mankind. Lavished upon all mankind. But God's free gift immeasurably outweighs the transgression, for if through the transgression of the one individual the mass of mankind have died, infinitely greater is the generosity with which God's grace and the gift given in his grace, which found expression in the one man, Jesus Christ, have been bestowed on the, on the mass of mankind. And that's a quote from the Weymouth translation. The difference between the two men is further emphasized in that judgment and condemnation followed a, a single offense, whereas the free gift of acquittal and righteousness follows innumerable sins. Your behaviors don't stop the objective reality. If spiritual death saw the gap in one sin and grabbed the opportunity to dominate mankind because of one person, how much more may we now seize the advantage to reign in righteousness in this life through the one act of Christ who declared us innocent by His grace? You are all innocent to Adam's offense. Grace is out of all proportion and superiority to the transgression. The conclusion is clear. It took just one offense to condemn mankind. One, of, one act of righteousness declares the same mankind innocent. And the Phillips translation reads, We see then that as one act of sin exposed the whole race of men to condemnation, so one act of per- perfect righteousness represents all men freely acquitted in the sight of God. The disobedience of one exhibits humanity as sinners. The obedience of another exhibits humanity as righteous. We are not made sinners by our own disobedience. Neither were we made righteousness righteous by our own obedience. There's a whole teaching in the body of Christ that comes out of this subjective reality. You need to be obedient. You need to be obedient. If you're not obedient, God's not going to bless you. If you're not obedient, you're opening the door to the devil. If you're not obedient, a negative, negative, negative. But grace has taken the demand of obedience that was required under Deuteronomy 28 away. It's now his obedience, not ours. It's now his faith and our understanding of what he's done in his faith for mankind, not our obedience and not our faith. Spiritual death provided sin its platform and power to reign. Now grace has taken over sovereignty through righteousness to introduce unthreatened life under the lordship of Jesus Christ over us. Look at Romans six fourteen through 17. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Just because we live in an objective reality doesn't mean our behaviors can't get us in trouble. We still have to have God's wisdom and make choices out of that wisdom and out of that love, not because I'm trying to medicate some issue in my life, but because I'm choosing to live out of His love, I'm going to make right choices more often than not. But it's a process. I guarantee you, I've been studying grace for five years, I still do some stupid things. So, you can go back and I encourage you to go back and read Romans six fourteen through 17 because it's, it deals with the fact that we're not slaves to sin. We're not required to offer sacrifices. We're not required to be perfect because we've been declared perfect already. Our acts, as we begin to understand who we are, our behaviors change to line up with that. 
And there's this progressive unfolding of grace. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. That's a progressive revelation. With all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height? To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, progressive revelation. God wants us to have a full and complete understanding of objective reality. But the fact is, I lived here under subjective reality for so long, I have things I have to undo, which I can't undo unless He shows me. Once He shows me, I can make a choice. Stay over in subjective or live out of objective. I can choose to see my wife as the daughter of the king, as very good in creation, or I can see her with the lady with the broomstick. Now that I've had the revelation, which choice do you think I'm going to make? Over here, we're operating under subjective reality in sin consciousness. We're always aware of sin. That consciousness denies the progressive unfolding of grace. It's a barrier. It's a block. It denies the completed work of Christ from an objective sense, and it locks our focus on the moral side. What choices am I making here? My behaviors. <gasps> what would Jesus do? What's he already done? See, there's a, it's a perception issue. That's where I wanted to go today. I don't know how much time I've taken. I don't know how much of you are bored, but I don't care. It was good for me. A couple notes from worship. When you encounter a love like His and get to know that love, our only true response is love. Right? And out of that response comes joy, unspeakable, and peace. I have so much peace since I've been looking at grace. I don't look at myself and go, I go look at myself in the mirror and go, God, you're so cool. Because <laughs> I'm reflecting Him. And so, how many of you remember Seinfeld? Remember George Costanza? George one time was sitting with his therapist. And George was a avowed unbeliever in God. And then he, and he makes a comment in therapy one time about God is causing all these negative things. And the therapist says, well, I thought you didn't believe in God. And he goes, well, I don't except for the bad things. Subjective reality. His expectation was the God of the lightning bolt. Never experiencing the God of love, so therefore why would he believe in a God of love? How do people experience God's love? Someone plants a seed. The Holy Spirit works in their life, opens the door. You speak a kind word. You do a kind gesture. You do a, something that God uses us to push the door open even wider. Not that we're going to walk through, but He's moving through. As disciples of Jesus, our role is to speak objective reality, not subjective condemnation. Which one do you want to be? That's my challenge. Which one do you want to be? You know, and in the old days, when I was living in subjective reality, when I would make a mistake or, or a sin, as the church would call it, there would be that immense sense of shame and condemnation. But now if I make a mistake, which what the church would call sin today, in terms of a behavior, because the church confuses the behavior with the condition, what I get is him saying, Terry, I know that was not the best choice, but I love you, and let me show you a better way. He doesn't condemn me. He says, let me show you a better way. Here, the objective Trinitarian reality is that the condition of sin was a sickness or a disease that needed to be cured. Over here, the evangelical thought is that sin is a moral depravity and there's no inherent goodness and the hope of change is only for a few who can grab hold of it. But most people will miss the mark totally. So that's really what I wanted to talk about. It. 
didn't, my purpose wasn't to focus on behaviors today because I truly believe as we get a grasp on objective truth, the objective reality that we are created in his image and likeness, that we are inherently very good, that his love for us is unconditional, unending, never wavering, constant in its moving towards us, that he's always showing kindness to us, and he's always drawing us deeper into his heart. We will have a life that is so different. It will be full of joy. It will be full of peace. I truly believe that as we grab hold of this loving God, that our our bodies respond. Healing becomes more manifest on a regular basis. We live in a world that has things that trigger physical responses, but our bodies are inherently created to handle most invasions of sickness and disease. But sometimes we just lose sight in reality of that it comes out of Him, and we think we have to come over here. And I remember those days when I had to confess everything to, in hopes that I would would get a touch of healing. And I remember a pastor telling me what one time that healing was in the sovereignty of God, and sometimes He healed, and sometimes He didn't. He didn't, and I said, so that means it's like playing the lottery, then, right? Because I just don't know if I'm going to be if today is my day or not. So I'll buy a ticket, but I may never get to cash it in because. It might be somebody else's day. That's a hard place to live. Over here, my expectation is always pouring out healing, whether I know it or not. And if I can believe that and believe in His goodness, I will see more of it than not. Amen? Something to think about this week. Which reality are you going to live in? How is sin going to be in the condition of sin, how is that going to impact you? What's your perspective?